With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so happy you're joining us today. Welcome to the 16th episode of my show. I'm excited to have this platform to raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, highlight current issues that really need to be discussed more to help prevent breaches and security incidents. And also, I really love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and PrivacyGuidance.com. My May Privacy Professor Tips message was published on April 30th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They're free. You can sign up for them by going to PrivacyGuidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. Today, my tip of the week directly relates to my topic we're going to discuss, and it's also very timely. So, Google sent out an email to Google Analytics users here very recently, basically anyone who has a Google account, and they were letting you know that you can choose how long Google Analytics retains data before automatically deleting it. Well, know that there is a caveat. You really cannot choose how long, but you can choose from five length options. So here's for the tip. Log in to Google and set this at the shortest time. Now, the shortest time they offer you is 14 months. So it's not really that long, but it's the best that they have out of the five options, the last option of which is they're going to keep it forever. Uh, starting on May 25th, which, by the way, is also the effective date of the EU General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, Google will then start counting the time from that point on. So Google will then automatically delete your data 14 months after collecting it if you chose that amount of time. And, you know, like I said, it's still excessively long. Of course, ideally, to best protect your privacy, it would be better to use an incognito browser. But know that that still does not hide your browsing from your employer when you're on your business network. And it does not hide your sites visited from your Internet service provider or from the actual websites you visit. So while using an incognito browser is a step better from uh, not doing anything at all. If you really want to be anonymous online or as anonymous as possible, 
and not have your online activities saved and subject to review by government agencies or by others, use an anonymous browser such as Tor, Epic Browser, uh, Komodo Dragon or Ice Dragon, or use a VPN, a virtual private network. Now, on May 4th of 2018, this year, the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence released their fifth annual Intelligence Community Transparency Report regarding the use of national security authorities. So what does that mean? Well, the report provides statistics on how often the government uses certain national security authorities to gather a growing amount of data from a growing number of surveillance methods for the communications that occur within or with those individuals within the United States. Now, it's only a 41-page read, so if you want to see the full details, definitely go to dni.gov and give it a read. Now, here's just a few of the interesting details from within that report. So the U.S. National Security Agency, NSA, they tripled the metadata collection from 2016 to 2017. So last year in 2017, they took over 500 million call records. Another point from that report, the biggest increase of data collected by far was the number of, quote, call detail records, unquote, collected from service providers. The number of call records collected jumped from 151 million in 2016 to 534 million in 2017. And another point from the report, warrantless Section 702 content queries involving U.S. persons jumped from 5,288 to 7,512 and more citizens were unmasked, indicating a general increase in quantity. Now, some of you might be thinking, what does all that mean? Well, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> and and we're, we have the perfect person to explain it. So where in the heck are all the different places from which the government agencies are collecting all of this data? And how do they target and decide the people about whom the collected data applies and do other countries do such data collection through a wide range of surveillance methods? Well, today we're going to discuss all these topics with a cybersecurity law expert who is my go-to person to sort out these types of questions. Today, visiting my show for the second time is my guest, who was also on episode two, where we discussed computer hacking crimes and prosecutions with Mark Rash. Mark Rash is a computer security, privacy, and risk mitigation lawyer in Maryland. Mark's career spans more than 25 years of corporate and government cybersecurity, computer privacy, regulatory compliance, computer forensics, and incident response. Now, earlier in his career, Mark was with the U.S. Department of Justice where he led the department's efforts to investigate and prosecute cyber and high-tech crime, starting the computer crime unit within the criminal division's fraud section, and also efforts 
which led to the creation of Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section of the Criminal Division. Mark was responsible for high-profile computer computer crime prosecutions, including for Kevin Mitnick, Kevin Polson, and Robert Tappan Morris, just to name a few. Mark is a frequent commentator in the media on issues related to information security, appearing on over a dozen different tele- television news outlets. Mark, thank you so very much for returning once more to be my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca. Glad to be here. Well, it's very timely, and we have so much to talk about. We probably won't hit everything, but we'll hit all that we can. Let's start, though, with um, thinking about the U.S. federal agencies. So which of the U.S. federal agencies participate in surveillance and related data collection activities? Like from that report, I gave uh, some, some different stats from earlier. Sure. Well, broadly speaking, uh, there are three categories of federal agencies that collect uh, information electronically. The first category is law enforcement agencies, and that would include, uh, I think there are something like 27 federal law enforcement agencies, but then you have all kinds of different federal police agencies, like Mm -hmm. the Capitol Police and the Supreme Court Police and tribal police agencies and the like. But the the big law enforcement agencies are the Department of Homeland Security. Security. The the Treasury Department has a police force. The uh, the FBI, uh, the Secret Service, those agencies, all as part of their law enforcement function, collect uh, electronic evidence. And in addition, uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies have a domestic intelligence gathering function as well. So, for example, the FBI is divided into law enforcement and intelligence gathering. So they gather bo- on both sides of the fence. In addition, you have a whole bunch of intelligence agencies, including the CIA, the NSA, uh, and other surveillance agencies that also collect information both in the United States and overseas. So those are the main agencies. The third category... Uh, aside from law enforcement and intelligence, is every other government agency who collects electronic evidence and information with respect to their own computers, computer networks, and computer systems. So if you're an employee of the Department of Labor or you send an email to somebody at the Department of Interior, your communications to and from those agencies and departments can also be monitored either by them as an employer or by their Office of Inspector General. So you're talking about millions, basically, of um, collection points where they're doing different types of surveillance, and they probably are all keeping their own repositories. It's not like all these are going into one centralized location, right, that they get that's right. And of course, I left out the Department of Defense itself. With I only mentioned mm-hmm. within the Department of Defense, the, the NSA, but you've also got a whole bunch of defense intelligence agencies as well and military operations and military intelligence and adjunct and support services. So there's probably maybe three or 400 federal agencies that have some responsibility for collecting, storing, analyzing, and processing uh, electronic information, electronic evidence, including interception. And then within that, you've probably got several tens of thousands of interception points. Wow. So there's a lot of collecting going on, and there these agencies, the different ones, are doing the collection under 
the purview of many different laws or legal requirements. And I know something from that report that was mentioned, and I put in one of my stats, was about the FISA warrantless Section 702 content query. So I know a lot of folks will hear that. And um, keep in mind, we have about 55% of our listeners from the U.S., but the rest are from other countries so what is the warrantless Section 702 content query? Is that something we should be concerned with? Uh, who are the primary parties' data right. that's involved with that? So, so when, you, when you think about data collection, you have to think about the difference between law enforcement's data collection and intelligence data collection. You have to think about the difference between collecting in the United States and outside of the United States and collecting about U.S. persons and not about U.S. persons. Those are the three main distinctions. So for law enforcement purposes, that's police, FBI, and the like, by and large to collect most information, they need either a subpoena or a search warrant. Mm -hmm. So to get information, they need one of those two things. And I can talk later about the distinction between those two. Mm -hmm. uh, that's law enforcement. Uh, to get information uh, for an intelligence agency, if they're collecting it in the United States, that's where the 702 program comes in. And the 702 program is a mechanism for uh, an intelligence agency operating on data that is within the United States to obtain phone records, non-content information, and content information uh, about both U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons. So basically, if the NSA wants to conduct surveillance of a non-U.S. person who's using a cell phone in the United States – the 702 program is what they do. And it and it is, I mean, it explicitly says it's warrantless. So what do they need to do? I mean, do they just say, call up an ISP and say, hey, I want to get this data and I'm invoking Section 702? Or how does that work? Well, they, re they have arrangements with ISPs, with telcos and the like to allow them to get bulk data of non-content information mm -hmm. uh, so, so they can do data analytics and the like. So okay. uh, that's a, the, the warrantless surveillance program. This was the program that was revealed uh, by Snowden, mm -hmm. right? And it allows, okay. it allows the, the government to get non-content information, which is basically, if it's an email, um, who sent the email and to whom, from what IP address to what IP address, and that's about it. If we're talking about um, a phone call, what phone called which phone, when, and for how long. So that's the non-content information. The courts have basically said that there's a lower expectation of privacy in non-content information, and therefore no warrant is required for it. Well, but you know, so what you described are kind of examples of metadata though, right? So are they limited in the amount of metadata? And for my listeners, metadata is really the data that is about um, a communication, since we're talking about communication. So, you know, as Mark said, it's not the content itself, but if you know the parties involved, right, you know, the time, the date, uh, the IP address, which will tell you the location, and there's a lot of other things, even down to the type of device and the type of operating system. I mean, so these uh, Section 702 content queries 
do those allow for the collection of all that metadata? Not all the metadata, but a good okay. deal of it. And, that, and that's a real problem because mm -hmm. at, at the time these programs were designed, at the time the Supreme Court said <clears throat> that, that people have a lower expectation of privacy in non-content information, I think there was a recognition even then that you can learn a lot from non-content information. Mm -hmm. and, and the main Supreme Court case that dealt with this was a Supreme Court case called Smith versus Maryland. And in Smith versus Maryland, the question was whether or not the government had to get a warrant in order to find the phone records of this guy, Smith, who had robbed a woman a couple of days earlier in Baltimore, Maryland. He robbed her and he got her purse and he, he knew her address and her phone number from, from robbing her. And she suddenly, after she was robbed, noticed this guy, creepy guy driving by. So mm -hmm. she got the license plate number. The police ran the license plate number and identified Smith. And she was started getting creepy phone calls from this guy. And the question was, did, this, did the police need to get a warrant in order to obtain Smith's phone records to prove that Smith was the one calling this victim? Ah. It was two or three days worth of phone calls. And they just wanted to show he made these phone calls. And what the Supreme Court said in that case was, look, these aren't Smith's records. They belong to the phone company. Everybody knows that when you make a phone call, <coughs> there's a, a record created that you made a phone call. And it doesn't reveal very much. It just reveals the fact that he made a phone call. So what? That's not that important. Also, that they weren't held by Smith himself. They were held by the phone company. So mm -hmm. these were records of the phone company. And the Supreme Court said, look, it's not content information. It's held by a third party. You don't have an expectation of privacy in it, so you don't need a warrant. Well, the problem is that those chickens have come home to roost mm -hmm. because now, based on those principles, uh, the third party doctrine, because it's held by a third party, you don't need a warrant. Or uh, the idea that because they say they're going to collect it, you have no expectation of privacy. Or because it's not content, it doesn't really reveal much about you. All of those are used as part of this idea that uh, the, the police can get all this stuff without a warrant. So, but that case took a uh, place in what year? I mean, wasn't that many years ago? 1972. 1972. So in 1972, if they knew your phone number, they knew where your mailing, your billing address was. That's right. But, 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 but that was printed in the phone book for the most part. But it was printed in the phone book. But still, my point is uh, that phone did not travel with you wherever you go, whereas Today, if you're looking at phone numbers, uh, now pretty much instead of showing where your billing address is, it shows where the person is if that phone is a well, mobile it's actually, phone. It's actually a lot worse than that. So in, in, the, Smith well, yeah. case, in the Smith case, uh, the dissent, uh, uh, which was Justice John Marshall, he, he wrote that he said, look, this is nonsense to say that this doesn't reveal very much about you. You know, it, it can tell you who your friends are, who your relatives are, who you speak with most often, who you speak with uh, and what you're talking about. You know, if, if you get a phone call from, from your doctor uh, and then three minutes later call an AIDS clinic and then three mm -hmm. minutes later call a life insurance place, 
guess what the diagnosis is and guess what you talk to your doctor about. And so the problem is we now have not only tremendously more volume of information, location data, IP address, the nature of the the machine that you're using, the, the cell tower information, all of that stuff. But we have data analytics that can slice mm-hmm. and dice this and tell you so much more about yourself, even before we get the content information. Yeah, so the, non- the non-content information can tell you what clubs you're a member of, what your sexual preference is, whether you vote Democrat or Republican, who are your closest friends, mm-hmm. all of that stuff before you even get the content. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and then so there's these type of uh, section 702 content queries. Now we also have the pin registered trace and, and tap orders. Yeah. So what what are those? How's that so, different from the other? OK, so for law enforcement purposes, there's this mm-hmm. distinction based on Smith, partly between content and non-content information. And for content information, that is to listen in on your phone call or read the contents of your email, in general, they need a warrant. Okay. Okay? Now, it's debatable about whether the police need a warrant to read the contents of your email, and I'll get into that in a minute. But following the president, they want to listen in on your phone call. They have to get a warrant. And we've all seen, you know, movies where they got a a warrant team, what's called a wiretap team. They're all sitting Mm -hmm. there with headphones and they're listening in, trying uh, to wait for the mafioso to say something like that. And for that, you need a fairly high standard of proof and you can only get a warrant for 30 days. And, you know, it's very it is reasonably difficult to get a warrant. It has to be based on probable cause. You have to specify why you want the warrant. It only lasts for 30 days. If the people aren't talking about criminality, you have to turn it off. You have to do what's called minimization. It's very Mm -hmm. difficult to get a warrant. However, there's something less than a warrant, less than probable cause required to get either a trap and trace order or a pen register. And those will tell you alternatively what phone calls have been, what phone numbers have been dialed inbound or outbound from a particular phone number. All right. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, in the old days, you literally put a pen register, which was a device you actually put onto the phone's dial when phones had dials. Mm-hmm. have a pen that would register when you moved the dial with with ink. And as you moved the dial, the pen would register the number that you called. That's the name of the, the tool, uh, right? <laughs> the tool, pen register. Mm-hmm. Um, so all that has to happen for the government to get a pen register or trap and trace is that some uh, police or prosecutor certify that it's relevant to a criminal investigation. So it doesn't require probable cause, doesn't require affidavits. It's, it's relatively easy to get a trap and trace or a pen register, but that's for non-content information. So that's for landlines. Is it also for VoIP types of communications, wireless? I mean, any type of uh, digital communication? Statute doesn't say, but it has been applied to mean any non-content information. Okay, so it... Has this? Do you have an example of when um, a trap and trace order pin register has been used, like a, a very famous one? 
all the time. Well, I can't think of one off the, off the top of my head. Okay. It's like thousands of times because so, it's so easy to get. And by the way, you know, in the old days, what would happen if you got a pen register order is you would go to a um, a phone. The you know, the police would go to the phone company. They would go to a phone closet. They would install some device, and that mm-hmm. would register. Now. All that happens is the phone company automatically sends copies of the of the bills on a on a daily or hourly basis to law enforcement by email. So it just by email. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, so, I don't know. I don't know how they are secured except yeah. that the main way law enforcement communicates with telcos uh-huh. is by fax. You know, so they're a lot like healthcare industry because uh, I have a huge number of healthcare clients, and and faxes are still used widely. So, um, in fact, the number one cause of HIPAA violations is misdirected faxes. Yes, even so, today in two thousand and eighteen. Right. So just think about the law enforcement. Then I mean, right. you know that they're doing misdirected. Uh, faxes as well so even emails are not particularly secure even if they're secured because you know you you may have a small police department in des moines iowa or outside of des moines and like davenport uh that 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 needs to get some records from facebook or from some isp in in virginia and they Mm -hmm. sit there you know Virginia is not going to have a mechanism to validate the email address of some sergeant with the Davenport, Iowa uh, police department or or Moline police department. Right, right. Well, I even had uh, years ago, there was a client and I was doing a risk assessment for them. It was a law enforcement and it was in their fax machine. They wanted, you know, they had in their back room they were going to sell these fax machines just to recoup some money um and i looked and it had all the data from their faxes in storage on the hard drive and they were like oh we didn't realize that they even had a storage drive in our fax machine we always just got the you know the paper copies out and that's we didn't realize that so what did they think happened when they couldn't send it and says resending what is it it was resending uh, the right. Xerox machines, there was a case a number of years ago out of Kentucky where the U.S. Justice Department was trying to get, make some money by reselling used uh, desktop computers. Yeah. <clears throat> and they forgot to, to wipe them and they had the names of um, people <clears throat> in the witness protection program. Oh, man. Who bought that? Did somebody the actually? The did. Oh no! Yeah. Well, well, that was very unfortunate to all their uh, victims. Uh, subsequently, then, so, um, well, so we've talked about these two different ways that data can be collected. Um, there's a lot of of legal tools then that government agencies can also use to collect what they call or they reference as call detail records. So that would include the meta data that we talked about before and so on. So what are some of the, um, the, the tools that government agencies use to collect the, the call detail records? Well, I mean, the, the number one, the number one is a trap and trace or, or pen oh, register. Okay. That, that you're getting the same data. The, the call detail re- uh, records are, you know, what, um, um, what phone numbers were dialed by what number. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So that's the number one way, and the vast majority of them are collected that way. But for intelligence purposes, uh, those called detail records are obtained either under Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or, or through a FISA uh, order or through a FISA warrant, and those are slightly different. In mm -hmm. addition, you have something called a national security letter. Yes. And a national security letter is a letter sent by law enforcement under the authority of the USA Patriot Act that allows them to request things like subscriber information and, and other similar information uh, in a way that the recipient of the letter is not even allowed to challenge it. They're not allowed to challenge it. They're not allowed to tell anybody that they've gotten it. And that's the other part about this. All of this is done in secrecy. So if somebody wants to get your records and somebody mm -hmm. has your records, whether it's law enforcement or intelligence agencies, because <clears throat> they are subpoenaing or demanding or getting an order to a third party, you have no idea they've done it. Now, if the police want to read the mail that's sitting on your kitchen table, they want to break into your house and read it, there's at least a possibility that you'll know that they've done it. Mm -hmm. Right. The, these what are called no-knock warrants or, or black box warrants are incredibly rare uh, where they're allowed to go in, see something, <coughs> excuse me, copy it mm -hmm. and not leave a copy of the warrant. So by and large, you know, when police do stuff, you're supposed to know that they've done it, have an opportunity to challenge it. When the police examine your records that are held by Google or, yeah, or an ISP or whatever, the problem is, not only do you not know about it, but um, uh, they typically get an order telling uh, the ISP not to tell you. Right, right. Well, you know, in recent years, I saw some of these, uh, the large tech companies, they started putting, especially on Twitter, they had what they called their uh, canary accounts. And basically, right. yeah, you've seen we'll those. Talk, I'll talk about, we'll talk about uh, the Canary accounts uh, after the break. Yeah, great. So I think we're ready for a break at this point in time. So uh, thank you, Mark. Let's uh, now take a quick break to hear from our valued sponsors that I appreciate so much. We're speaking today with Mark Rash about surveillance tactics and related laws and actions. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Simbus360.com, PrivacyGuidance.com, and LinkedIn. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from our sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy and compliance tools, education and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. 
Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. Today, we're talking with Mark Rash about government surveillance activities and the associated laws. So let's continue our conversation. Right before the break, we started talking about the Canary Accounts Uh, that some organizations put up because, as Mark was explaining with the NSL records and the other surveillance, there's pretty much gag orders to keep companies from letting their client, the the public and their clients, you know, know that they're being surveilled upon. So, Mark, can you kind of talk about some of the canary account activities that's going on? Sure. So one of the problems you have is because so much of your life is held online, all of your electronic communications, many of your phone calls, your emails, your social media is held by third parties online. And what that means is whenever somebody wants to get to that stuff and read it or examine it, whether it's a, a government agency, uh, a, an intelligence agency, uh, foreign government, whatever, uh, they will serve process on the third party and you will not know. So unlike mail sitting on your kitchen table, if somebody wants to read your email, they don't. They will get a warrant, but they will serve that warrant on Google or AOL or uh, some other email provider, and you Mm -hmm. won't know. So one of the techniques done, particularly in cloud contracts, is that um, a a person using a cloud provider will put what's called a canary clause. And that comes from the expression, the canary in the coal mine, that Mm -hmm. uh, coal miners used to keep a canary with them because canaries were particularly sensitive to carbon monoxide. And that when the canary died, they knew it was time to get out of the mine. Mm -hmm. So a canary clause will basically say, um, you, 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 the cloud provider, Uh, must certify every week, every day, every hour, whatever it is, that you have not given my information to any third party. So every, every day, for example, they have to say, we hereby certify that we haven't given your data to a third party. 
So now the FBI comes in and gets a warrant to take my data mm-hmm. um, and orders my cloud provider not to tell me. Well, my cloud provider can't send me an email and say, hey, the FBI was just here. They took your data. But what they can do is at the end of the day, not send me the certification. Mm-hmm. When they don't send me the certification, I know somebody has my data. Right. So no news is bad news in that particular right. Well, case. no news is news. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. You can, set, you can set these up so that, um, you know, by at three o'clock, they have to certify that no data has been sent to the FBI. At four o'clock, they have to certify that no data has been sent to the Secret Service. At five o'clock, they have to sort So by knowing what time or which message I didn't get, I can actually figure out what data was sent and when. And you right. can write these fairly granularly. Okay, these these canary clauses, uh, because it's the only really the only protection you have as a data user as a data subject mm-hmm. uh, that your data has not been viewed by the by some law enforcement or other agency. Well, and it's not just even email. I mean, Twitter. I that's one of the things. If folks, if listeners aren't on Twitter for nothing else, you can uh, use Twitter to to see who your different, um, you know telecommunications companies and other types of tech companies and non-tech companies really uh, are doing because a lot of them have these types of tweets going out now to communicate just those types of things, right? So so, um, so the interesting thing is, you know, yeah, on Twitter, Facebook, other social media, there's public data, semi-public data, and, and private data, none mm-hmm. of which is private. Okay. Right. None of which is private, because remember that when you're communicating, whether it's Google or whether it's Facebook or whatever, the first thing you're doing is you're hitting your ISP and your data is traveling through your ISP. Mm-hmm. So unless your your connection to the to the social media is encrypted, that data can be snarfed. Okay. Mm-hmm. We got. Mm-hmm. I got. But even if it's encrypted, uh, it, it's still at risk. You know. Yeah. For example, um, so your public Facebook data, anybody can search. Mm-hmm. Your your data that you've kept available only to friends, you run the risk that the FBI will log in as a friend or with the permission of a friend, and they mm-hmm. can search. Right. And then even private stuff is subject to subpoena or search warrant, depending on what it is. Right. So it, it, all of that is subject to surveillance. And I'll give you an example. After 9-11, uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the first responders uh, ended up getting sick after 9-11 and filed disability claims in New York. And these are police, firefighters, and the like who filed disability claims with the city of New York. Mm-hmm. Well, the city of New York suspected uh, some of them of uh, overstating the degree of their injuries. And they wanted to look at their Facebook profiles, not for what they po- posted publicly, but they wanted any of their communications that they made <coughs> Excuse me. Through Facebook, uh, like pictures mm-hmm. uh, of them surfing or whatever else it is, the entire contents of their Facebook profiles. Oh. So they went. They got 381 separate search warrants, served it on Facebook, and told Facebook that Facebook could not tell these police and law enforcement and firefighters that they got these warrants. So the entire contents of these people's Facebook pages were turned over to the police, and they Mm -hmm. didn't know. In fact, most of them still don't know about it because that order is perpetual. 
Well, and not only those, what was it, 341, did you say? 381. 381. So not only was it them, just think about all of the communications you do with other people, of course, on Facebook. So you also have all of the people communicating with them. And those would be what would you'd refer to as the incidental, um, maybe uh Right. Under, under 702, now under the, under the intelligence community stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a distinction between stuff that's intercepted, uh, domestic communications and international communications, and U.S. persons and non-U.S. persons. But mm-hmm. it's a distinction without a lot of a difference. One of the problems is we think of, as, of an international communication as somebody from Moscow sending an email to somebody in the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, somebody from Moscow, um, is there a Moscow, Iowa or Idaho, Idaho? I think it's Idaho. Idaho. Somebody from Moscow, Idaho, sending an email to somebody in Paris, Texas. All mm-hmm. right. Is a, well, we would consider that to be a purely domestic communication. Mm-hmm. Similarly, though, somebody from Moscow, Russia, sending an email to somebody in Paris, France. That email is likely to be bounced through a server in Northern Virginia right. because of the way the internet is connected. And that's considered an international communication subject to the 702 program. Ah, interesting. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that when you send a message, any type of communication through the internet, it's actually passing through potentially dozens or hundreds of servers, right? Thousands of servers sometimes. And those are all over the world before. And, and, uh, well, the internet doesn't care about geography. Yeah. yeah. Jurisdictions and law enforcement and, and, and courts and judges do. And so right. they said, well, if it's bounce, if it's coming into the United States, U.S. courts have the authority to order its, its collection. And the truth is it's only going through the United States because we've designed it that way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for the listeners, then they need to realize that um, that you can tell there's tools that can tell where those communications were passing through. I think a lot of people think Just doing oh, well, a simple trace route will tell you what it passed yeah. through. Yeah. So then. So we have the communications. Let's say that I was over at a conference in Russia and I met someone. So they wanted to know more about privacy issues in the United States. So I came back to Des Moines, Iowa, and they started sending me messages. Now, unbeknownst to me, maybe they were somebody that uh, somebody in uh, the, the U.S. government was actually surveilling. So, so now if it's... they're the subject of surveillance, okay, uh-huh. and it's not you, then then they would need – they want the contents of the communications, and they're intercepting it in the United States. They would need a FISA warrant, okay, and they would have to do what's called minimization. That, that would mean they would have to minimize the collection of information about you. Okay. Okay. But so there are there are quite frankly a good deal of privacy protections built into the system. The problem is they're based on technologies developed in the 1970s. Right, right. Before we had the capabilities now, but but like you said earlier, even if they do have the protections in in place, there's still a lot they can tell about me when they're surveilling this person I might uh, might be communicating with me from Russia. So they can tell what time, what day, what location that I'm communicating with that person from, right? And how frequently. Right. 
And, yeah. and there was changes now recently to Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, which relate to search warrants, and the Cloud Act, uh, mm -hmm. which allow law enforcement agencies in the United States to obtain and execute warrants to obtain information located overseas without going to an overseas court. Oh, so, interesting. So now, if information is relevant to a U.S. criminal investigation, uh, and it's held on a server, say, in in Paris, okay, mm -hmm. used to be that the U.S. government have to issue uh, uh, a, a request of the local police in, in Paris who would have to get a court order in France, subject to French law, to search the ISP in France. Now, under what's called the Cloud Act, which passed uh, earlier this year in response to the Microsoft Dublin case, mm -hmm. uh, the, the the U.S. court can issue the uh, the warrant to uh, the uh, the company for the mm -hmm. records located in Paris. So let me give you another scenario. Earlier in the show, when we just came on, I was talking about using you know, anonymous browsers and right. um, using VPNs. So let's say I'm communicating with somebody from Russia and I'm using a Tor browser and I've established a VPN. So what they are doing, they're communicating with me. I'm communicating back to them. If that other person that's communicating with me has just a regular Chrome, Firefox, whatever browser with no... Uh, type of plugin that would give them any type of a anonymity, then there's a lot that can still be collected if I'm communicating with another entity, another person who hasn't taken those precautions, right? Well, there are a couple of things. A Tor browser doesn't provide anonymity. It provides obfuscation, which is different. Right. Okay. So um, at the end of the day, you, if you are using the internet to communicate with somebody, a packet is traveling from your computer to their computer. Right. Uh, otherwise, there's no communications. And while Tor browsers can be helpful in obfuscating the source, destination, and pathway. Like websites. That's correct. So yeah. if you're going to a website, a Tor browser is helpful in obfuscating your your location and uh, identity from the website operator and what you are looking at from your ISP because mm -hmm. the ISP simply sees you hitting a Tor outward point, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, that's all they see. Right. And the website operator only sees um, uh, you uh, coming from a Tor uh, outbound point to them. So it obfuscates where you're going to your ISP and where you are coming from to the website operator. So let's take this one step further. Let's say this person from Russia is also on Facebook. And I, and I don't know if that's actually <laughs> even the case. I don't know what uh, Russia's restrictions are on using Facebook right now. But let's say that they allow it. So if I'm communicating through uh, Facebook, through Facebook Messenger, let's say, and I'm using the Tor browser to obfuscate that communication, and I'm going through a, a VPN to get there, that person's still going to Facebook. Um, if you are doing Facebook Messenger back and forth, uh, it, it really doesn't matter what security either of you have put on because you are now securely communicating from your 
browser in Iowa to Facebook servers in California. Mm-hmm. But you, then you provide them a Facebook user ID and password. So right. basically you're saying, remember, remember me? Yeah. Okay, so so it, it doesn't really uh, help all that much unless right. you've created a fraudulent or fictitious Facebook account, which you can do. So for our listeners who might think that there's ways to get around this that's simple, I think my point is even if you're doing these things, there's still the data, the metadata, and also so many different systems involved that that data can reveal what's going on, kind of like with the um, the hacking during 2016, right? Sure. When So in 2016, a lot of people were saying, oh, well, you can't tell if uh, people are trying to hack into different places because you got to catch them <laughs> in the act. But the fact is they're leading, leaving data trails, yes. um, even if they're taking these what they think are precautions. So well, the best the best precautions you can take are that you use a clean computer with a clean browser because if you're infected with malware, all mm-hmm. bets are off. If there's a keylogger on your system, it's, it's like having either the cops or a bad guy sitting over your shoulder. Okay? Right, right. So it doesn't matter what you do at that point, you're toast. But if you have a clean system, okay, uh, and you're, you're, you're running a, a clean system with a clean browser, that you're using a Tor uh, router to access the internet and a VPN, and all your communications are using an encrypted service like like Signal. Um, you're going to be in pretty good shape. So, with regard to that, then, um, and kind of the same concept, but only on the flip side. You know, a lot of my friends, and when I travel, like uh, I went to Singapore a couple of years ago, so I I took a I wouldn't call it a throwaway laptop by any means, but I got just a really basic laptop that I'd never used before to travel with. So I didn't have anything on it other than, you know, what I needed to use to show my PowerPoint when I was there giving my classes and then to be able to get, you know, on uh, and communicate. So I think, uh, what my concern was, was while I was there on the different various networks that I might have been infected with sure. different key loggers uh, in some of the other countries, because I went through some other countries along the way. So well, there are a couple it, of things to note when you travel. OK, mm-hmm. the first one is at every port of entry. OK, mm-hmm. uh, whether you're an American citizen traveling abroad uh, or, or a foreigner traveling to the United States. Uh, the local customs and immigration officials likely have the right to not only examine, but possibly even image the entire contents of all of your electronic devices without right. a warrant, without probable cause, without reasonable suspicion, nothing. Okay? Have they done that to you while they you have, traveled? They have not done that to me, but they have done that in many, many cases. Yeah, yeah. It, now, they've not done it to me either, but I had a person in front of me in line one time that they started looking at their laptop and then they pulled him aside and I didn't see that person <laughs> again. So but it, one of the things about this is if you have any attorney-client privileged communications, and I as an attorney have a lot of attorney-client privileged communications on my on my phone and my computer, but if you have ever communicated with a lawyer – about a privileged matter, and that the contents of that email is somewhere on your uh, on your drive. 
then you you need to tell at least if you're coming into the United States, you tell the uh, the, the customs officer there are attorney-client privileged communications on this machine. They will ask you, "Are you a lawyer?" And you say, "No, there are communications between me and my lawyer." So now that works. That that's works. That's the in only other exception. That's the only exception that requires them to get a supervisor's permission. It doesn't require a warrant. But that's in the United States, right? That's in the United States. So what if what happens then when I'm in another country? Um, that's why you shouldn't take those types of things with right. you on digital devices. You because assume, You should assume when you travel into another country that the officials of that country have the full right to image everything on your computer, everything on your phone, everything on your iPod, everything on your watch. And then they are probably doing their own types of, you know, surveillance and why, you know, uh, all the different types of things that you and I talked about earlier. Well, what's worse about this is, you know, one of the things on your phone and your laptop are your passwords. And the law is ambiguous about whether or not at the border they are entitled to now log into your accounts and now examine those as well. And in fact, one of the things that the U.S. government is thinking of requiring for people seeking to come to the United States is they're thinking about the, the requiring them to give up their social networking passwords and accounts yes. in uh, order for the U.S. government to determine whether or not they're suitable to visit the United States. Right. That I saw that. And that's so, so crazy. You know, we're down to just a couple of minutes left. But, um, you know, we've been talking about government surveillance and, and the ways in which data can be collected sometimes without our knowledge. So what would be a, the, a couple of key takeaway points for our, our listeners to keep in mind with regard to maybe um, U.S. government surveillance, maybe what they hear on the news or, or when they're traveling or when they're doing other things? What are a couple of points you think are important for our listeners to keep in mind about this topic? Well, I think the most important thing for, for people to keep in mind is that they they need to um, uh, encrypt uh, in, uh, communications that they want to keep private, both during the time that they're having the communications using devices like Signal or the like, uh, or, or other uh, secure communications. Uh, encrypt communications uh, in email that they want to keep private, and keep them encrypted even while they're stored or secured, and then delete them when, when they don't need them anymore. And don't just delete them, but forensically wipe them. You know, I'm working on a case right now in, in California in which uh, it's a, it's a, involves child pornography and, the, and Google's practice of scanning um, emails for child pornography, viruses, worms, malware, and then scanning the contents of email to read them so they can deliver ads based on the contents of, your, of email. And in this case, the government is taking the position that because Google does that, people who use Gmail have no expectation of privacy. Oh, man. Well, we're at the end of the show, but that that's going to be another good topic for you to come back and talk about. And I'm so glad you brought up encryption. Um, encryption is one of my favorite tools for security and privacy. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show today, Mark. I know we'll have you on again in the future. Okay, I'm glad to be here. 
And I'm confident that my listeners have been greatly enlightened today about various legal tools that government agencies use to perform surveillance and how all that data collected uh, could be used in various investigations and court cases. Today, we've been speaking with Mark Rash, a computer security, privacy, and risk mitigation lawyer in Maryland. You can see more about Mark on all the major news networks and also contact him using his email, mdrash at gmail.com. Oh, there's a Gmail ID. Yep. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune into the show each week. If you cannot make our scheduled lifetime, you will be able to listen to the recordings, and you can find recordings of all my past shows on iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher.com, TuneIn.com, Player FM, in addition to, of course, the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website. Please get in touch with me if you need any help with security or privacy. Um, you can contact me with questions, comments, and also show topic ideas using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information, how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.